You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Soap here. Excited to be joined by 2020 NLC LA fellow Michael Deegan McCree is here. Catching up with him. Haven't talked to him since early January, and man, things have changed just a little bit since that time. Let's hear what he's up to. Let's hear what's on his mind. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to it. All right, Michael. Yeah, so give me the scoop on how often you're chatting with your fellow fellows. Is it WhatsApp? Is it GroupMe's? How are y'all staying in touch? Uh, so we're we're keeping in touch a couple different ways. Um, we're definitely uh, keeping in touch through our WhatsApp, um, you know, conversation thread that has been put together by our uh, co-directors. Um, but we're also keeping in touch, you know, in in other ways. I think um, myself and Michelle Sanchez, we are um, the fundraiser co-chairs this year, and so um, facing these unprecedented times of trying to fundraise during a international pandemic have definitely put some new unfamiliar roadblocks in our way. And so we definitely have had to keep in touch about once a week and also keep in touch with uh, the NLC LA board to make sure that we are abiding by all of the goals put in place by national and also, you know, the individual goals that our cohort wants to um, abide by and, and represent you know, LA as, as a community being the progressive leaders. So we've had a lot more connection that I think we would have had this not come about uh, because we, we really want to make sure that we are leading the community uh, the way that we see fit. That's what I was going to ask because, you know, initially in thinking about the cohort, my concern was essentially it gets cut in half and you don't get to see each other for the back half of it. Would that mean there'd be less, of a bond, less of a connection in longer term, would that mean folks wouldn't connect as much or come back to NLC as much? But it almost sounds like you're saying the opposite might be true. Yeah, I think we have actually had to have conversations that are a little bit more difficult. You know, we are a national organization and we are a Los Angeles cohort of a national organization that prides itself on being very progressive. Uh, I think that this pandemic has challenged us to look at what progressivism means to us as a cohort. And we've had additional conversations about what that means. Does it mean that we, you know, stick to our guns and and go out there and try and make sure we fundraise for the 2021 class in, in the same tradition that all the other cohorts have to make sure that they have an experience uh, worthy of their progressive leadership a year from now? Do we, you know, take a sidestep and still honor that tradition, yet also look at the ways that we can help our community um, in a time of 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 mayhem, in a time of of stress, where there is not much certainty among us all, uh, and that's really taken taken a toll on our cohort. But I think it's it's really shown the leadership. It's shown the connections that we have with each other to really have these in-depth conversations. And I, I'm really, I'm grateful um, for that. I'm grateful for the opportunity I've had to talk with, with many of my, um, with many of my cohort fellows about how we move forward um, with the tradition of NLC, but also adding on this, this opportunity to show what type of leaders we truly are uh, when something kind of comes out of left field at us, like uh, the coronavirus has. And one of the conversations too, I feel like has been happening more in the last probably two weeks is 
the coronavirus and folks in the criminal justice system, folks in prison, and we're seeing some really harrowing and, and, and startling situations in Rikers in New York and definitely here in LA where, where, where too many people are, are housed and have been for generations, unfortunately. I know your work with the Bail Project is trying to change some of this. So give folks a little bit of the scoop, the, the, the short answer on, on how you're, you're trying to make sure folks aren't unfairly susceptible to the virus just based on the fact that they may or may not be able to pay bail. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. Um, the Bail Project has taken a really, really aggressive stance since this has all started with a majority of, of our sites. We have 20 sites across the country. Uh, Los Angeles is not one of our sites, although we are based here, but we do deal in the courthouses in Van Nuys and in Compton, and we have been included in the conversation um, by the uh, DA's office, the sheriff's office, and the mayor to um, kind of consult on Los Angeles. Um, you know, no matter what you've heard about Jackie Lacey's office and and the mayor's office, um, when it comes to to criminal justice reform, they've actually responded really, really well. Uh, when it comes to COVID nineteen, they've really done a stand up job at getting those out who should not be there, um, especially those who are sitting inside of the LA County jails on pretrial uh, detention. And so um, we don't really have too much of a gripe with their operation at the moment. I think um, it can attest to all of the response that California has had in general, that preventative measure, measures from the Bay Area all the way down to San Diego were put into place. Um, and and we're very happy about that. But I would say across the country, there has been uh, a different response based on the state. You know, uh, We reached out to all 20 jurisdictions uh, writing letters of of support to every single district attorney, sheriff's department, and then also some of the district judges asking that they release everybody who is being detained on pretrial. Um, and so one of the sites that I'll give as an example that, that did not give an appropriate response was um, Cook County, uh, which is in Chicago, um, Chicago, Illinois. They decided to kind of rest on their laurels and they did not respond um, to our request and also to our, um, uh, to, our, to our letter saying that we would be there for support. We would be the entity that would help with wraparound services, that we would ensure that people got housing if they did not have it. We would be the entity to uh, take down all of their rescheduled trial dates and ensure that they had rides and support back for those rescheduled dates. And um, they didn't really want to hear it, which we were kind of surprised by because uh, it's not like we just entered Chicago. We've had a site up and running there for some time now. Um, and then, you know, the first, the first, uh, sign of the virus came into the main jail and, you know, there's over 500, 600 plus people today that are confirmed, um, infected with the virus. And, and again, I say confirmed because when you have any type of outbreak in a jail or in a prison, 
um, regardless if it's this COVID-19 or measles or the flu or anything, it spreads like wildfire, right? Um, and and so now we're, we're up against a situation where we are doing a mass bailout in Chicago and most of our resources are going towards that effort. Um, my last check as of the end of last week, we had gotten over 300 people out, but it, it's a long process when you have a list um, and there's criteria that you have to meet to get people out, which is why um, we much rather would have had the preventative measures put into place uh, before any of this had happened. But um, I do know that many different criminal justice reform organizations from Cut 50 to Reform Alliance um, to Families Against Mandatory Minimums all across the country are working as hard as they possibly can to ensure that our incarcerated population are treated appropriately um, and are, are being um, released when, when, they, when they shouldn't be inside in the first place. We go back. We'll talk more about the possibilities in the future of what can be done to maybe reset some systems here that we're talking about with the criminal justice system and the incarcerated community. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Zag. We'll be right back. Yeah, Michael. Are there any lessons to to be drawn by all the efforts that you're doing presently as we maybe try to reimagine what our our bail system or just the 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 justice system could look like 12 months from now, 18 months from now, given that we could try to reset many things this where um, that conversation has been going for healthcare or going for transportation. Why couldn't it go to this topic as well? What kind of thoughts do you have on that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, a good question. You know, this, this magnitude of, of a, of an issue that impacts all walks of life, um, across the world and, and in our country really should make us think about the way that we um, treat each other in, in our different um, different sections of, of the country, especially when it comes to government. Um, just last week, our office was contacted by Congress member Karen Bass's office, who is the representative for California's 37th district uh, and also the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, as many know, we are headed towards Congress looking into a fourth stimulus package to help revitalize the economy and ensure that those who are out of work uh, are able to self-sustain, that those who are essential workers are protected. And when it comes to the incarcerated population, we finally uh, got the, the tap from Congress that they would also uh, want to start protecting those who are overseen by the Bureau of Prisons, but also the state and county justice systems as well. And so for us, we see it as an opportunity to, from the bail project standpoint, possibly get our model of community release with support funded on a more regular basis um, and give us more you know, instances where um, states are looking to decarcerate. And so um, we are going to be joining a conversation, not just us, but other um, other criminal justice reform organizations to have a conversation with members of the Congressional Black Caucus and their staff, um, and then also with the Progressive Caucus to look at what it would look like to um, fully decarcerate on the state and county level um, when it comes to certain age groups, when it comes to certain um, illnesses, um, when it comes also to certain 
um, uh, convictions uh, that not not everybody who is incarcerated truly needs to be um, inside, and that decarcerating as a whole um, sets us up to better serve our communities, um, especially when it comes to um, public safety. Uh, as we see, you know, right now, as I just mentioned uh, before the break, the massive bailouts that are not just happening in Chicago, but are happening at the state level, the federal level, um, and other jurisdictions, you know, we, we are bailing people out without this sort of, um, you know, what I see as a very, very important role that does not exist at the moment, which would be a transition team. Um, and a transition team uh, would look like folks on the ground, ensuring that those who are being let out um, have all of the proper uh, tools and resources that they need to reintegrate back into society. Things as simple as, um, you know, identification cards, <laughs> um, you know, showing certain folks who have been incarcerated for decades uh, the changes in how you um, can have access to public transportation. Um, and opportunities for for education and employment. And that's something that we're going to suggest to the Congresswoman tomorrow afternoon, actually, um, is the stimulus package to have funds um, that would be technical grants for assistance that would go to organizations that are on the ground in the communities already doing this work. So not necessarily creating within government a department um, not shoveling more money to the district attorney's office or more money to the sheriff's department to create a task force, but to contract out with community nonprofit organizations that have been doing the work, as I said, on the ground to help um, help out with reentry efforts and give them the task that they are already doing and give them additional funding to ensure that there is a safe and educational transition, not only for um, society at large, but also for the brothers and sisters that we're bringing home. And so I think that is my, my biggest hope um, in being a someone that is, someone that is a, um, <laughs> sometimes seen as an extreme pragmatist, uh, but I, I really believe that that is something that we can weave into um, everyday life on this uh, this road to to criminal ju- criminal justice reform, um, and and have that part of part of our new system. Well, listen, glad you're on the case, and glad you're doing so much to make sure everyone can stay safe and looking also at the long term future. Appreciate all the work you're doing. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Zag. Make sure to check out all the episodes. And all the spots where you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, they're all there. Lots of interesting folks, both progressives in LA, but also across the country. Don't miss it. Hear what they're up to. And until next time, we'll catch you soon.